When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Yep. Oh. <laughs> uh, this will be posted on YouTube and on Spotify, the video. So um, we're doing that because we have to record on Zoom. Nick is in Berlin currently for the film festival. What year is it? The 73rd or the 92nd? Yeah. The, the 73rd. That's a, it. It is. Yep. Whoa, I guessed it the first time. <laughs> so you arrived on Saturday? Uh, I flew out on Valentine's Day and I arrived on Thursday oh. <laughs> or Wednesday, the 15th. How was your flight? Uh, uh, I got no two flights. I got on, I had no sleep. Um, but they were fine. They were, it was easy, which um, after I arrived, I found out that there were major issues with Lufthansa. I don't know if you read those news stories where they had severe interruptions during those travel days. But so a lot of people, I think, had no, actually, I do know that because I went to a conference on Friday and I actually um, got to sit in on a really interesting uh, like meeting because someone we know was also there so it was kind of fun but the people who we met with were german and they were saying that they're having issues because lufthansa had already canceled like 300 flights so i so i actually did know that um and you're staying in your usual hotel mm -hmm. how are you feeling uh, I'm, I think I, today's a, that hit the wall day. Um, and I'm a little, I'm borderline delirious, but I plan on getting a, a, a great night of sleep tonight. Oh, good. So tomorrow will be a, a better day, but, uh, otherwise <clears throat> next Sunday you'll be back. So we can use that time to talk about all the things you saw. Um, and then I'm sure we'll make a video about the best and worst from the festival. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm just going to keep this train going. So did you ever watch Judge Mathis? No. Oh, I did. And then uh, People's Court, I also watched. Um, I mean, yeah, like as a kid, that shit would be on, but at home, but I didn't really watch Those are it. produced by Warner Brothers, and uh, Warner Brothers just canceled both. Um, to be honest, I wasn't if you would have asked me, I couldn't have confirmed that they're still on the air, but <laughs> they're being canceled. Uh, my memories of People's Court is in the late 80s. Um, the judge was Joseph Wapner. Yeah, I remember also Rain Man, uh, Wapner. Oh, <laughs> so so I have fond memories of Joseph Wapner, Judge Joseph Wapner. And then Judge Mathis, I've always liked because he's a very colorful character, but He's also a very staunch, like vocal LGBTQ 
ally and um no he is and it's not available on youtube anymore because the wendy williams show channel was deleted to make way for the sherry shepherd show but if if a person can find it he was on wendy williams once and she asked him about like the gay community and he was very aggressive about how he's a very strong supporter one of his children is gay and oh because she kind of questioned him like oh i saw that you were in like the atlanta like the black maybe it was like the black atlanta gay pride parade or something and she kind of said it like what's up with that and he was very like assertive that he is a very very strong supporter and he said some very nice things so if i didn't already really like him because he's very colorful on his show um that just make, made me like him even more i know he has a reality series with his family i don't know if it's still on but you know he's been super successful and i'm sure we'll 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 see him in some other capacity elsewhere and then live with kelly and ryan apparently ryan seacrest is leaving and i also couldn't have told you that show is still on the air <laughs> i don't care for ryan seacrest um, not at all uh, and when i think about him i think about that interview with him Brittany. will i am and Brittany, and those two homosexuals are talking about their girlfriends and you can see britney spears being like oh, oh wait hold up hold up <laughs> she's, yeah she's calculating in her mind yeah the only time that lady has seemed lucid to me is during that interview. Which, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know a straight man and the, you're gay. Like, <laughs> shout out to Grace Jones and Boomerang. Mm -hmm. um, well, so I don't, I know I've talked about me working in VIP services in a casino in Las Vegas many times. And I don't know what podcast or video has gotten more views recently that prompted, um, uh, more than one person to ask me like how I got a job working in VIP services. So I thought maybe I would talk about that for a second and I hope it's interesting. But um, so I worked in VIP services at a casino called the Aladdin. And basically my job was to cater to all of the high-end casino guests and the talent who would perform at the 7,000 seat theater that was there. So uh, I'm just going to tell a story. We'll see where it goes. But um, 1999, I was full-time, a, a full-time college student, and I was working three part-time jobs, and it was miserable. So I needed to get like a nighttime job full-time so that I wouldn't have to worry about my school schedule and I could make enough money to live. So my boyfriend at the time, who was my first boyfriend, he was the front desk supervisor at a casino off the strip so he got me a job there and my schedule was midnight to 10 a.m and I worked four nights a week and at a point we had decided to move in together so one day I go and get a u-haul so I like get off work at 10 a.m go home take a nap pack up all my stuff in the u-haul and then drive it to work because the plan was when I get off the next day at 10 a.m., I would move in with him. And he worked like a like an early swing shift. So he would work like 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. So I never saw this fool at work. But that day I show up to work and he's there. And he's like, we need to talk. And I was like 100% sure I was being fired for something. But he told me basically like, we're breaking up and you can't move in. 
So it's like, well, I have nowhere to live because I moved out of my apartment and my roommate there had already, someone was moving in who lived out of state. So there was no opportunity for me to move back. So me finding housing is a separate story, but I continued to work there because I needed a job. So then the Aladdin is a casino on the strip that was very popular, like in Vegas's heyday, like in the seventies. And I know Elvis, I know I used to know the full history of this casino, but anyway, in like 97, the Aladdin was imploded and then rebuilt as the Aladdin, <laughs> like same design, same name, just bigger and better. So American. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I apply to work in VIP services because I knew that's the job you want because in the other casino I was working in, those people seem to have it made. So I apply and they actually call me in for an interview. I do the interview. And then a few days later, HR calls me and says, you're not being offered the job. The feedback that they received was that I didn't have the look they wanted. So that's a bummer, right? Like, oh, I don't look good enough to work in this, whatever. But that's Vegas. I mean, the things that cocktail service have to go through, you know, it's not uncommon to be told you don't, you know, that you don't have the look. But, but I did, it was more about being gay than how we look. We, we could definitely throw that in there. But, um, and I was the only, well, all, you know, ultimately I did end up working there, but I was the only gay person. But anyway, they tell me, you know, that it's a no, but the manager who interviewed me recommended that I interview with the front desk. Mm -hmm. And I was bummed out because basically my little 21 year old brain is like, they just told me I'm ugly. And then they're telling me I have to go work at the front desk, which I hated. I hated working at the front desk at the other hotel. People are awful and mean. And I could tell a million stories about that. But anyway, I, I took the job because A, I couldn't work at the same place where my ex-boyfriend dogged me the hell out and it paid like 50% more. So that's great. So the property wasn't done being built yet. So they told me when we're like two months out from opening, we'll have everyone start training. So like a month goes by and they give us a date. So I show up for my first day of training and it's not at the casino because the casino is not fully built, like 2,500 rooms, 50 stories high, well, technically like 40, but they, um, some of the rooms don't have windows in them. So it wasn't ready to be occupied. So we had to train in this big warehouse by the airport in like May and June in Vegas. So it was hot as hell in this warehouse. So I show up for the first day and everyone's there like housekeeping, reservations, call center, front desk, VIP services is there. So when we show up, we're all in our little groups and we have regions of the de like designated areas. And immediately when I saw the VIP people, it was clear, like I was not what they were looking for. Like two of the guys were actual models. The women were gorgeous. One of them you've met before. Um, so I didn't feel that bad because it was like, I'm not playing with these fools, but I start working. And this is where I get to the story of how I got the job. So my, the most important thing to know about working in a casino in Vegas, and keep in mind, this is 23 years ago. So who knows how things are now, but seniority was the most important thing because that really determined your schedule and where you worked. So you can imagine like if you're a cocktail server, if you're working 
like mornings in the penny slots area, you're making very different money from the women who are working Saturday nights in the high limits area. We're talking $200 versus $2,000. So people are very like concerned about seniority. So we train and then right before we're supposed to start working in the actual casino, they say, okay, we're going to do a lottery because all of you started on the same day. And I believe for my area, there were 80 employees, eight zero. And I pull number 74. So I'm at the bottom. So the shift I get is midnight to 8 a.m. with Mondays and Thursdays off. So not only did I work graveyard, but I had split days off. But it turned out to be a gift because VIP services, they were done at midnight. So anything relating to like high and casino guests and the executives who uh, deal with them had to go through the front desk. So an example would be, you know, some million dollar player calls down at one in the morning and they want a limo to the strip club. We're supposed to contact the executive and say like, hey, this is what they want. And then they're supposed to get it all done. So I was working, there's like a skeleton crew at that hour. And the the person I would mainly work with was this woman who I have a million stories about, but she was very like strict. Like that's not the, how we're supposed to do things. Like, cause the executives would call and say, can you do it? But we weren't allowed to use the system that handles like gaming, like seeing what people gamble and how much money we can give them. So we're, we're not supposed to do anything. But then very quickly, like as the weeks go by and I got you, cause I'm the only guy down there for five nights a week, they would call me and say, hey, do you mind just like, can you log in? And that's how I learned how to read like casino play and how to like comp stuff. And even though I wasn't supposed to. And when high end guests would come in after midnight, they would give us the keys because it's also important to know that we had like a private entrance entrance for VIP guests. And it still exists. If you go to, the Aladdin is now called Planet Hollywood. If you go through Valet, there's an area that's like a private, like check-in or you can go to like a private lounge, private elevator to like the high, um, the high roller suites. So if it was like a random Thursday or Wednesday at three in the morning and a uh, VIP shows up, I would have to be available at that private entrance to show them to their room and do all the stuff. So what, so the this is leading to the story of how I got the job. So one night, Stevie Nicks was supposed to arrive because she was performing at our casino. And they were like, you know, make sure you're there. Make sure you take them up. Go check the the, the room first. So it's like 1.30 in the morning. She shows up with her assistant. Um, I take them up. You know, I wait outside the suite and say, like, please check it and make sure that there isn't anything you need. And the assistant comes, Steve, the, the suite to normal people, it was a beautiful suite, but it had like a foyer and then you have to enter the next room to get into the main part of the suite. Stevie Nicks didn't even walk into the suite. She was just waiting in the foyer. Her assistant went in and immediately came out and said, this is not going to work. And I'm like, I haven't even been working a month there. No one is available. I've already learned that the executives who are supposed to be available either are asleep in their office or they go home. And if we call them on their cell phones, they'll just tell us what to do. So I'm like, I don't know who to call because the one person I called wasn't available. And the assistant's like, this is not going to work. 
she wants a villa at the Bellagio. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know anything about anything. So I said, okay, let me figure something out. So they waited in the VIP lounge. And she's like, if you, the assistant's like, if we can't get what we need, we're going to leave. So I'm like, oh my God. So I, long story short, call a few things. I do end up getting her a villa at the Bellagio. So of course I'm waiting for the next day when I come in to be told like, I'm in trouble. I don't know. But I was actually um, praised for like taking care of the situation on my own. And then they told me that if I wanted, I could work in VIP services on the phone, <laughs> like not face to face. So I did take that job and then very quickly was able to make my way into working like in the lounge. And then of course I have a million stories about that, but it was not a very, um, it wasn't an easy road to get into the VIP lounge, but um, I always think like, oh, if, if Stevie Nicks wouldn't have shown up and been difficult, I probably, I probably wouldn't have um, gotten the job. And it turned out, you know, the four years I spent doing that job really changed my life. And again, I could talk for hours and hours, but that's the basic story. Um, nowadays, things are very different because most casinos on the strip are owned by like two big um, entities. But back then, like the Aladdin was privately owned. So we got away with murder. And that's really what made it such a nice um, opportunity for me. But that's the end of my story. We can move on <laughs> to films released we didn't cover. So it looks like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was re-released. It was, yeah. I haven't seen that since the year it came out. So I've never you, seen it. You haven't? Oh, we have it on 4K. Oh. We should watch it. Yeah. With Michelle Yeoh. Oh, she's in it? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and you know who directed it in I didn't know that either. Uh, something called Emily. Uh, you passed on this, which is why we didn't watch it before I left. But it's a, a biopic about Emily Bronte, uh, directed by Frances O'Connor uh, and starring Emma Mackey, who is the young vixen in Death on the Nile, the Kenneth Branagh version, of course. Uh, oh. Yeah, and you, you know who Emily Bronte is. I'd have to look her up. She wrote Wuthering Heights. Oh, the Bronte sisters. Yeah. Yes. Which there were three. And um, I've read uh, Wuthering Heights and I still don't know, remember. <laughs> sister wrote Jane Eyre and then there was Anne who wrote novels that people don't keep up with as much, but. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm not the literate one here, but yes. There's a 1979 French film called The Bronte Sisters starring Isabelle Huppert and Isabelle Adjani as two of those sisters. Ooh, is, is it good? Oh yeah, I love it, of course. I would watch that. Oh, speaking of, if you want to put your camera or your laptop down, you have an Isabelle Huppert shirt. I do, it was a gift given to me, not by Isabelle. Wow. Um, uh, and you know, the Bronte sisters had a, uh, it was a highly dysfunctional living situation and they had a brother, um, God, I'm forgetting the brother's name now, but he's played, played by Pascal Gregory in that 1970s film, anyway. Something called Hidden Blade. Um, yes, directed by Air Cheng. It's uh, starring Tony Leung, uh, who's a, a, of course a huge star, and I think his best works you in Wong Kar Wai's films. But that came out. 
something called pacification. Pacification. Well, pacification, uh, I'm sorry. That's I reviewed that out of Cannes last year, which I really liked, starring Benoit Magimel, and it was directed by Albert Serra, who's a director I really like. I think you watched the the preview because we discussed covering it before I left, but we didn't get to it. Return to Soul. Uh, I think you would like this uh, as well if you ever get around to watching it. But direct, directed by Davy Shu, it's premiered in Cannes in in certain regard. Uh, it has a, a kind of a standout breakout lead performance from Park Ji Min, who plays this uh, this Korean woman who she's, who's adopted by a French couple as a baby, and she spends the film in a very kind of interesting turn of events, getting back to her bio parents. Hmm. And lastly, tell it like a woman. Uh, this is a seven-part film uh, directed by uh, each directed by a, a different woman uh, about women, and it's notable because Diane Warren finally received an Oscar nod for the I think best song. Oh, I don't know if you remember. I think oh. that there's a habit of Diane Warren uh, or going around to oscar related parties uh selling her kind of uh talking herself up and it kind of paid off also but andrea riseborough can't uh <laughs> well. uh moving on to projects of interest uh relay oh yeah let me look at my notes david mckenzie lily james Riz oh yeah i like I like David McKenzie a lot, and he's, I think it's a thriller and starring Riz Ahmed and Lily James, who I don't really care for Lily James. I think she's boring, but um, I, I do tend to uh, like David McKenzie's films. Shout out to Riz Ahmed. He used to be our neighbor. Yeah. In West, well, I don't know if he actually lived there. I would just see He could have been, he could have been going there to hook up for all I know. Oh, you just told all his business. <laughs> That's Hollywood. Uh, uh, mean Girls stage musical? Uh, yeah, Tina Fey is developing a, a Mean Girl stage musical, just what we need. Uh, and I believe Amy Poehler is also returning, and a couple other cast members. Not, uh, you know, you know who Lindsay Lilo. Well, I'm yeah. sure people will be excited about that. Uh, the leader. Uh, it's a film about the Heaven's Gate cult, directed by Ooh. Michael uh, and Tim Blake Nelson and Vera Farmiga are going to play those fun cult leaders. I would be interested in that. The Fountains of Paradise. Uh, a Pitch Upon We Are the Cole, uh, the Thai auteur uh, who directed such things as Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, and which won the Palme d'Or, uh, Cemetery Splendor, which is a, a favorite tropical malady. He is apparently going to be adapting an Arthur C. Clarke novel. Uh, it's, it hasn't been announced for sure which one. I'm sure that it'll be you know, an original take on it, but uh, maybe The Fountains of Paradise. Uh, but that's exciting news. Things we watch for fun. So I watched the new block of episodes released for the Netflix series, The Upshaws, uh, okay. which features uh, Wanda Sykes, Kim Fields, Mike Epps. Uh, I, I really do like that show. It's pretty basic. Uh, <laughs> but I like that it doesn't shy away from like more adult content in contrast to the show on Netflix, which I also like with um, Loretta Devine and one of the Maori sisters. That one is definitely a little more, you know. That's uh, family values. Uh... Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, 
So yeah, but I but I if a person hasn't checked out the Upshaws and you like any of those three people, uh, I would recommend it. You watched Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Yeah, I've never I'd never seen it before. I, so I watched it on the on the plane here, which means I didn't see the infamous penis shot. I was just gonna ask, did did they show it on the plane and they didn't? No, which is fine. I don't need to see Jason Siegel's penis. Um but that was it was entertaining. I, I liked it well enough um, it, for such a, you know, a landmark comedy of 2008, because I remember it was very popular. I, I no. guess I, it, it's fine. It's directed by Nicholas Stoller, who, of course, did Bros. Well, as you know, I used to work in a salon where we would have we had a library of films that would play on repeat. And forgetting Sarah Marshall was we they they were random, but we could also select. So uh, we would often select forgetting Sarah Marshall because the way people would react when because we had like the full version <laughs> when Jason Segel's, uh presented nude was always a fun moment. Um, you watched the breakup, yeah, on Valentine's Day. Uh, directed are by. Are, are you trying to tell me something? No, Jesus. Uh, not with that movie. Uh, oh, which movie would you choose to show me when you're over me? We Won't Grow Old Together. <laughs> oh. We're <laughs> um, both old, so there you go. <laughs> you better pick a new one. Anyway, The Breakup. I'm not familiar. I'm not old. Um, I'm just fine. The Breakup, directed by Peyton Reed, uh, who is, who, whose debut was Bring It On, which I still have yet to see. Uh, oh my gosh, you mentioned that in the video and there were so many comments about, we can't believe you haven't seen Bring It On. <laughs> I just never, I, I think the the group I was hanging with in high school, that was not a cool thing to watch. Because I, sure. so and I, you know, just never got around to it. Uh, so I will remedy that soon. But the, I remember when The Breakup came out, because uh, I think generally, Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. Oh, maybe I have seen it. Because um, we had just reviewed Ant-Man and Peyton Reed directed all three Ant-Man movies. Oh, so, that's the video, yes. Um, which I loathe those. So I'm like, let me see if this man actually had something to say at one point. Uh, but I remember that when that came out because I think that's right when the breakup was happening with Brad Pitt. Mm. But And the breakup's fine. There are a lot of interesting things uh it, it's funny looking back just what 15 or how many years ago uh that how, how they were trying to uh, kind of shoehorn queer characters into these kind of broad comedies uh like what's his name john michael higgins i i think that's his name he who's in that fran drescher series about when she married a gay husband uh yes. and he's in the christopher guest film licorice pizza uh he plays jennifer aniston's gay brother who apparently gay people can't read the room. And then uh, J Justin Long plays Jennifer Aniston's coworker, who at this day and time, we called that character non-binary. Uh, oh. Very interesting portrayal. And then Anne Margaret is completely wasted. She's in like one scene as Jennifer Aniston's mom. It's like, if you're going to hire Anne Margaret, could you give her something to do? Uh, well, yeah. Anyway, it was okay. Okay. Unfortunately, there are entries in the obituary section and there are some honorable mentions. So I'll start oh. with honorable mentions. 
So, you know, Bruce Willis's condition has worsened. He has that frontotemporal dementia. Um, so it looks like he's in bad shape. Yeah, he's only like seven. Yeah. Um, that makes me sad. I mean, I know it affects a lot of people, but, you know, I also, you know, it's like to have a, a memory of someone. Um, and he looked, he's looked good for so long, too, to think that he's not in good shape right now is sad and of course, I have very fond memories of him in Moonlighting with Sybil Shepherd. Actually, I had a breakfast with my mom yesterday, and we were talking about him and Moonlighting. And so, yeah. And then Jimmy Carter, he's going to start hospice care. I saw that headline as well. Yeah, but he's like 98. He's He's been kicking for a long time. Yes, he has. But yeah. And then... Um, Tom Sizemore, he's in critical condition. Like, he's in an ICU right now because he suffered a brain aneurysm. Oh, well, you know. And we were just talking about Tom Sizemore, and I couldn't remember why. Devil in a Blue Dress. That's right. Devil in a Blue Dress. His character is, he does a very good job of being vile. <laughs> but, yeah, typecast in that Yeah, way. but that's also very um sad. Yeah. And then for people who have passed, George uh, T. Miller. Oh, sorry. There's somebody, I don't think, uh, I read right as I was leaving my last film that Richard Belzer died. I have that on my list. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. So George T. Miller. Yeah, there are two Australian directors named George Miller. Um, <laughs> and one of them died. Uh, I think, what was he, 82? He is best known for The Man from Snowy River and The NeverEnding Story 2. So it's not George, it's not the Mad Max George Miller, 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, and I he has a film that I own called The Aviator, starring Christopher Reeve, which not I the aviator. So he is just yeah. like second brain everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but he died. Well, I'm sure he'll be missed. You you mentioned Richard Belzer, who I think, well, I recognize him. Uh, like his face like I know he was a comedian and I know he's on like a cop type he's on, on, on the side right. life on the street uh and, and something else but I was reading that um like a longtime friend of his is the one who confirmed his death and he said the the friend said that Richard Belzer's last words were f you mother effer I have to watch my language because it'll be on YouTube but I you know that's a good way to go out <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there, I I think I read somewhere where Joan Crawford's last words uh, were "Don't you dare pray for me" or something. <laughs> those will be your last words. <laughs> oh yeah, since apparently that never mind. Oh well, uh, and then lastly, Raquel Welch died. Yeah, that bummed me out. Yeah, um, I feel like if you were here, we would have done like a poll on like a Raquel Welch movie. We can still do that because there's a bunch of stuff that I have. She did this Western that I own called, I think it's called Hannah Caldwell or something. I've never seen um, Mother Jugs and Speed with her and Bill Cosby. Uh, yeah, we should do that then. I mean, Myra Breckenridge is, you know, a fantastic film in my opinion because... Well, and I even read the book. Yeah, which I too. Like, you know, I don't read very much. So uh, <laughs> but I did read that book. And, and its sequel, Myron Breckenridge, yeah. 
so but i mean just like an otherworldly beauty like when you talk about someone being snatched that's raquel welch and then even as she aged you know she had a wig line and the wigs were crunchy uh and there are lots of if you google like raquel welch wig tape there are a lot of pictures of her with her because she you know lace front wigs are more mainstream now but when she started you know getting used to it hearing them there are a lot of photos of her with her lace not being glued down properly but um, that lady looked amazing and had such a fantastic career do you know she wrote a memoir yeah i remember uh, watching interviews when she was uh, promoting it i'm sure she's had the most fa i mean the most fascinating life um and she wasn't she was she was only like in her early 80s right yeah well, moving on. So our secret film is just sort of what was convenient. So <laughs> um, yeah. on the plane to Berlin, you watched the 1998 American science fiction psychological thriller film directed by Barry Levinson called Sphere. Uh -huh. what, do I, what do I know Barry Levinson from? Um, the Bay, that found footage horror film. I, I know you've oh, seen yeah. Uh, I think, didn't he do Rain Man? Um, oh, oh well, that was, well, maybe that's how he got Dustin Hoffman to do this. Well, he, he also directed uh, Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman, which he made on the fly because Sphere was going through so many production delays. Um, so yes, he likes Dustin. Uh, his son, Sam Levinson, is also a notable director who was the one that was dating Aunt Ellen Barkin for a long time and was much younger than him. Uh, but Barry Levinson, he just had something else. He had the the Survivor with Ben Foster. Um, we just watched some other Barry Levinson film. Oh, Disclosure, which is also uh, Michael Crichton, based on a Michael Crichton novel. Is that with Nicolas Cage? Demi Moore and Michael Douglas. Oh, what's the movie with Nicolas Cage and Gina Gershon? Oh, that's uh, Inconceivable. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I did enjoy that movie, but it's not good. Um, did you dislike Sphere as much as I did? I hated it, but Sharon Stone's beautiful face was staring out at me on the plane. And it, just, it came up, somebody had referenced this in a chat on a different video we recorded. Um, and I hadn't seen it since I rented it with my parents. And I remember my dad hating it. Uh, I, think... so I think it made me want to revisit it since it's been however long since I've seen it. I think I hated it. Um, yeah, it's terrible. The dialogue is unbearable. It's so remedial and repetitive. Like I like if I had to write something, it would sound like this. Like it's just like someone with no. Oh, it. I like I just could. So the dialogue's terrible. Then I think the cast is too shiny. It just oh. is so distracting. You have Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone. Samuel L. Jackson, Lee Schreiber, Queen Latifah. It, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. And Dustin Hoffman is probably the most annoying one. He is so terrible. And you cannot tell me that a woman that's brilliant and beautiful as the Sharon Stone character is, would have lost her mind over an affair with that man. That is probably, I mean, that was driving me crazy. Like, not only were they in like in a relationship, but he drove her to insanity. Like, like, like suicide? No, not. Uh, no. And she was his patient, and it's 
I, I hate that. I hate how, again, this was a highly compromised film production. And I think nobody involved was really happy with the final product. Um, I'm going to read the log line. A spaceship is discovered under 300 years worth of coral growth at the bottom of the ocean. So there is a spacecraft that is detected under this coral reef. And then we get, there's so much talking, so much exposition, so much explaining. But we uh, find out that we, based on the rate of growth for coral reef and the position of the spacecraft, that it has been down there for 288 years. So of course, you, we would assume that it, it's an alien spacecraft. So a team is assembled, the, the characters I just mentioned, to go down there to check it out, which already to me seems stupid. Why wouldn't there be like trained military personnel, like, like Marines and underwater experts? But no, we have like a psychologist, a Marine biologist, like why are they? It, But explain why that team was assembled, how that protocol was developed. Do you remember? Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman had written a paper for the Bush administration. Never mind that this is in between two different Bush administrations. Uh, right. I just pulled some shit out of his ass to say what we would need to do, basically, if uh, we had to be introduced to an alien life form. And it would be that you would get these people that he names. <laughs> how, like, I mean, how dumb is that? It's, it's, it's so stupid. It's beyond, like, it's so asinine that I almost expected this to be a comedy. Well, and then you forget that Peter Coyote is the head of this agency that is tasking, it, it has a, has the one that's called this team, assembled this team. Okay. He always, he always plays a villain. He's like the captain of this thing. And I thought his acting, I mean, I don't think, I, I don't know who this person is, but I think the dialogue was so bad that his acting just came across like so crunchy. But... Anyway, these fools go down there. And the only cool part about the movie, like that gave me any sort of tension, is they're roaming around this airtight spacecraft, like 20 leagues under the sea or whatever, or whatever fathoms. I don't know the terms, but in the Jules Verne book is a reference. Yeah. They get into the spacecraft and they're, you know, creaking around and they come across a trash can. And the trash can says trash basura so like in english and spanish so clearly this is not a foreign spacecraft so then immediately you think oh time travel and that's what it is it's basically that some team in the future um crash landed on earth you know in the 1700s and we find out that they got sucked into a black hole and they were looking for something and what they're looking for is a sphere Oh my God, the scene where Lee Schreiber's talking about some artist drawing a perfect circle. It's just like, who is, what is the purpose of any of this dialogue? You start, yeah. I just left a movie uh, where he played Henry Kissinger. Anyway, I he was actually, he was probably more grating to me than Dustin Hoffman in this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a close, I mean, they're very close as to how bad it is. Um, so we find out to wrap it up that this fear has like, powers like if someone goes into the sphere they end up developing this power where like you know their dreams come true but in this movie it's manifesting as their nightmares come true so we basically see like all of these people's fears come to life and start killing like they start killing each other because of it 
And, but really only like three people end up dying because the final three are Sam Jackson, Sharon Stone, and Dustin Hoffman. And they're able to destroy the sphere, blow up the spacecraft and get to the top of the ocean. And then they're rescued by some ships, which I thought was so crazy because we're told that the explosion that's going to occur is going to be like a nuclear, like, like, like an extinction level event type situation. And then when their little fucking, oh, excuse me, when their submarine gets to the top of the water, there are like no ripples in the ocean. Wouldn't you expect like a tsunami? Anyway, the end. Well, no, it's not. They were trapped down there because of this this storm raging on top of- That's right. But the final scene is that now that they've been rescued, they're in quarantine and they know that they're gonna be questioned. Like what happened? Several people died, like everything blew up, what happened? And they make a pact to say that they're going to forget about the sphere. That's because, so- because they logically deduce that that's the only way that mankind won't be doomed or, 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 or that, 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 that they can survive because they have to, we can't get to a point in time where humans are looking for the sphere. So we have to forget about it. Yeah, they okay. just and then the the sphere manifests itself out of the ocean. Metaphorically, uh, no, it doesn't because people can see it. They ask what that is it's to destroy itself in the sky. So, uh, so yeah, you're right. I, I I missed that. The sphere is not destroyed in the very end. Like like the final shot with bad CGI is this sphere shooting out of the ocean into like space. Um. There's so much about this movie I didn't like. The story is ridiculous. The cast is ridiculous. The writing is terrible. How it's edited. It feels like a TV movie because it's broken up into these chapter segments that do nothing to... Have no purpose. Have no purpose. Well, final analysis. (laughs) And then, you know, like, sometimes being derivative is good. Like, in this instance, if you're going to do a movie like this, it needs to feel like aliens or like the thing or you know it needs to have that dark like you're submerged there was no tension at all because these characters are so ridiculous we so one big big plot point we didn't or i didn't mention is that sam jackson a lot of they realized that he went into the sphere and that the bad things that are happening are coming from his like dreams. But then ultimately they realized that all of them ended up going into the sphere and a lot of things are happening. So I thought that like Sam Jackson's characterization was ridiculous because immediately it's like, oh, he, because they think that the alien is communicating with them via code and they decode it. And so the alien's talking to them in the most rudimentary language. And then- and call me Jerry. Call me Jerry. And then they and then du- there's a scene where Dustin Hoffman is reviewing like the code and he realizes they mixed up a letter. And so really it's call me Harry, which is Sam Jackson. But and then the code for how they do the thing also is they deduce how it's a numerical code based on a keyboard that is uh viewed from uh the perspective of the sphere, like yeah. like you know, so so stupid and then if they misspelled jerry wouldn't or harry wouldn't a bunch of words like any word that contained h or a be misspelled i i just thought that was such a dumb plot point but it's like, I mean, stop calling me jerry i'm angry 
I'm just going to quickly go through my notes. There is so much talking. Did you not think so? Yeah. And it's not, but it's not interesting either. It's just like chatter, just chatter. When I realized Sharon and Dustin had been a couple and that he drove her to insanity, I like, I, I had to stop the movie and do something else for a minute. Actually, I had to stop the movie and then read the Wikipedia entry to make sure that I had heard things correctly and that that's where this is going. Um, Beth Halpern. Uh, and then I also really don't appreciate how they kind of make her seem like they, they really try to sabotage her character because who else does it? Peter Coyote. Peter Coyote confronts Dustin Hoffman like this crazy bitch. <laughs> my that's my next note because they confront her about like her like drug use and she's like, well, every once in a while I take a piece of Xanax, which made me think of a piece of a burger. A burger. <laughs> just take the whole pill. Yeah, they're just totally. I mean, the, the the writing of this character making her like this hysterical woman who's like went insane over this homely ass man, Dustin Hoffman, and she's a ed, she's an educated woman, like a like a doctor, a marine biologist, and they wow. make her so. I I'm not even going to go through with them all, but I have so many. I wrote down so many lines of dialogue that are just terrible. Again. The casting is so distracting. Too many personalities. We have a scene where they're all in the elevator together and they've consumed helium. So they're talking with like the helium voice. And I just thought, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Then um, we Sharon Stone's performance is like 1970s era Liz Taylor. I'm going to give it to you. Is what But she's it's doing. not convincing at all. There's a moment where she's walking around and she's like, She's so flat sometimes, like, this is great, guys. Wow. Like, that's how she's talking. Oh, but by the end of the film, she's kind of unhinged. And yes. to me, that was giving, like, Liz Taylor in the driver's seat. I did, but the movie had a budget, and I do think it shows. The CGI for 1998 isn't the worst. I mean, the worst part is when we see the sphere leave at the end. But when they realize that it's a time capsule or like that there's time travel and they see all the dates on like the touch screen. And then we get like the unknown entry montage CGI. I thought that looked kind of cool. Um, Queen Latifah looked like she didn't want to be in the movie. And then, okay. okay her, her death scene. Yes, because, well, yes, you can talk about it because I was going to mention what she says before that. So she goes underwater and she's confronted by a bunch of jellyfish. Oh, but that was it, yeah. But, but before that happens, she's talking and she is so flat. She's like, wow, this is tranquil. This is really beautiful. Like, <laughs> and like then but then when she gets confronted by the jellyfish, she's screaming like, they're sticking me through my suit. They're sticking me through my suit. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> it's, it's uncomfortably bad. And then we see Queen Latifah's dead body, like on the autopsy table, all bloated and crazy. I thought that looked crazy and then ironically Kel, uh queen latifah was recently on you were in the room when i watched it i think where she was on maybe like the drew barrymore show and drew barrymore was like hey um i was reading that you have like a no death clause in your contracts yeah, and, queen and, and queen latifah was like yeah because earlier in my career they would always kill me off so i'm like well this movie would be probably one of the examples she would cite. Like she's in this horrible movie where she's the first one to die. Yeah, in a film that there's not that many deaths. Uh, 
but just how they had to speed the jellyfish up because you know it's jellyfish but they leave Schreiber's treating her like she's so stupid like move through them they can't do anything it the the way these scientists are acting like these educated people is so outrageous then Sharon Stone's describing when when she's doing the autopsy she's showing like like she's pulling out pieces of the jellyfish from Queen Latifah's dead body and at one point she says that these are not God's creation, which I thought was a really weird thing for a marine biologist to say, but. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Uh, like, uh, all creatures, great and small, Sharon. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. There's a scene where Leave is talking to Dustin and he's like, he's jealous of, because he and Sam Jackson are both like scientists. I believe they're both physicists. And he's jealous of Sam Jackson because Sam Jackson's like resume is more impressive. And he's telling Dustin, you know, in physics, if you haven't done it by the time you're 35, chances are you never will. Like, because he was talking about Einstein accomplishing whatever at 20, whatever. And like, why are we even hearing, like, aren't, like, aren't we trapped underwater with this like alien sphere? Why are we talking about you and your career right now? <laughs> oh, well, I just seen ways to ask Sam Jackson, like, when did you get your first PhD? And it, it beat him like a, by a year. And it's like, these people. Oh, so corny. So corny. Um, I thought it was a funny, because the way that alien Jerry is talking to them is via like this computer monitor with like the words being typed out. And it's very rudimentary, like caveman language. And at one point someone says, if this translation is right, this alien sounds like an idiot, which I thought was funny because when we find out it's Sam Jackson talking. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, just parents don't say like, well, that's interesting because there's got to be stupid ones. Um, oh, I what I was getting, what I was thinking of was how the nightmare sequences are playing out. It's much like that scene in uh, Witches of Eastwick, another a George Miller reference. Oh, what's the movie with um, Kiefer Sutherland and Kevin Bacon where like their worst memories like they're pushing death or oh flatliners flatliners i feel like this movie was trying to be like if you mix aliens or the thing with like flatliners like there was so much potential to do something interesting and instead we spend so much time with the three primary people just hamming it up like i like i don't understand uh, it, it, it actually, i think it's at a similar level as something like virus with jamie lee curtis and Oh, yes. Yeah, actually. Um, it, the it, captain... I also want to rewatch... Oh, Supernova. no. Want to rewatch what? Supernova with Angela Bassett. Oh, I would like to watch that. Walter Hill had his name taken off of. <laughs> There's a moment when the captain is explaining air pressure to leave, which was so stupid to me. Like, he's a physicist. Why are you explaining how air pressure he's he's like if like if you don't do this it's gonna like like this is gonna collapse and it's like yeah i know i know how this works he's it's because he's explaining it to the audience who are not physicists oh I god i know I just like the writing is just like hitting you over the head getting back to what you said about them making sharon crazy the, the captain literally says like don't listen to her she's crazy and that's after he finds out that she attempted suicide by taking 20 yellows which is a reference <laughs> a drug called Nambutal. Um, I did think Lee's death was pretty gruesome because like a fiery, like, uh, like under the door. Yeah. Yes. Like he, some heavy piece of machinery falls on him, but he's like on top of a grate and then underneath the grate, like a fire ignites 
So we see him like trapped and then like his head is burning. That was pretty gruesome. There's also a really interesting close-up shot of Sharon Stone. Do you recall that? Where like the camera pans in on her? I thought that was cool. Um, Apparently she had asked the cinematographer, she was very concerned with looking a certain way on camera. Uh, and the cinematographer was like, we're trapped underwater. That's uh, interesting because I hated her hair and I hated that her hair looked like it. Because that hairstyle she has required styling, even though it looks messy, it requires product. So it's like, why do you have like this tousled pixie with these terrible highlights? Did you notice she had like individual pieces that were clearly foiled? Like who thought like they needed one highlight right here? I hated, hated her hair. Okay, can you talk about the scene? Can you talk about the scene where Sam Jackson is reading 20 Leagues Under the Sea and then Dust Dustin has this vision of all the books? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he says like he was scared after page 87 so then he finds all these books and after page 87 they're all blank and that's when they realize that it's his nightmares coming to reality and that the thing crushing them is the the kraken creature from that book which happened up page this movie is not sophisticated enough to play with this sort of like psychological like like these mind tricks it just feels so dumb <laughs> It's just well, it's just dull. It 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 more than more than it is even dumb. It's just it's flaccid and banal. But I don't have anything else to say about this movie. Um, I'm 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 glad that we got to both watch the same movie for this podcast. But this shit was not it <laughs> at all. I know. Well, of the three movies I watched on the plane, I felt like this was more interesting to talk about than the other two comedies I watched. But... Sure, sure. What would you give this movie? uh like one, one i would give one out of five um it was like it was virus, hard it was hard to sit through uh, even on a plane because it's like two hours and 14 minutes right it's long yeah um, I and I, three segments i never uh read the book but i i was a michael Crichton fan it but you know the 90s were there was a Crichton craze right because of jurassic park um and i remember in 97, I had very high hopes that they were going to make the uh, his book Airframe into a movie starring Sigourney at one point. That never happened, but mm. we got Sphere instead. I don't know. Well, um, that's all for that. Um, so we will be back next Sunday to hear about your goings on, your escapades and whatnot. And then uh, we have three reviews coming out this week. Or cocaine bear and some other things I don't remember. Juniper and I think linoleum. That's right, juniper and linoleum. So we have some stuff coming, and then Saturday we won't have a live video because you'll be you'll you'll be flying back that day, I think. But I have uh, uh, another film from a black female director in the can that I will drop on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the people? Uh, power to them power to the people love peace and hair grease alright um, well ta-ta for now